0: Welcome to the Governance Podcast at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Andrew Blick and I'm a reader in politics and contemporary history at the Department of Political Economy. I'm also director of the Centre for British Politics and Government. We're very pleased to welcome my colleague, uh, Professor Roger Mortimer, to the podcast today. Hello. 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 Uh, hello, Roger. Uh, Roger is Professor of Public Opinion and Political Analysis here at King's, and he's also Director of Political Analysis at Ipsos Mori, the well-known research company. Thanks so much for joining us today, Roger. The subject of, of today's podcast is exit polling, and I understand you in, in the past have had a leading role in the conduct of i've That's right. Polls. I've been one of the many members of the team
1: that produces the exit poll with every general election for the broadcasters that's uh,
0: shown at 10 o'clock
1: at night on election day.
0: Right, so the one that we see go out at the beginning of the election coverage. That's exactly it, yeah. Right, on uh, on BBC One, ITV and Sky News? Sky News, News all, 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 all of them at the same time, all using the same poll. Okay, good. So to start off with, simple question, what is an exit poll? Um,
1: it's a term that you sometimes here used wrongly, but correctly and strictly, an exit poll is a poll that talks to voters immediately after they vote, as they're exiting the polling stations, and asks them how they voted. And that you know, that basically is, is the only real kind of exit poll. You do see other kinds of polls, sort of done on the day, asking people over the telephone how they voted, and
0: it's a similar thing, but that it doesn't count as an exit poll. So in, you've partly answered this, but what is the difference between an exit poll and a more regular opinion poll that we see in the press on a weekly or well the, the, basis? The, uh, the most important difference is that those regular opinion polls are done before
1: people vote. It's a questioning, how do you expect to vote? How will you vote? And of course, some people will change their minds after they've been asked that. An exit poll is after the vote. We're actually asking them not their
0: opinion, but the actual fact, what have you just done? And beyond that, is there a technical <laughs> difference or a methodological difference? Uh, the, the, there are lots of methodological differences. Um,
1: and the most important one, I guess, is that um, simply for practical reasons, um, opinion polls before Elections are usually um, arranged to be efficient. So we do; it's not quite cutting corners, but we do things a little bit more cheaply than you otherwise would, because you could, you, you, you know you couldn't do that many. Uh, the one exit poll that we do for the broadcasters probably more money is spent on that than all the other opinion polls in the election put together. It's a huge expensive exercise. And within that budget, we can use the most complicated and expensive methodologies. We use random sampling for the key part of the the selection of voters that we talked to, and I'll talk about that in in a moment. Um, And because we're talking to people who've just voted, we know that they voted. And that's the biggest problem that regular opinion polls have before the election, um, we're asking people how are you going to vote, but we've also got to decide whether they're going to vote or not, because obviously a lot of the people we talk to won't vote in the end. And that is probably the biggest problem that pre-election polls have in making their results match the the, the outcome of the result, that they're including people who
0: don't vote. So there are some significant qualitative Differences. Some are the same methodologies, but there are some quite significant. Differences. Well, yeah, I mean, they're
1: the, the, the same methodology in the sense that we're asking voters questions and writing down the answers and adding <laughs> them up. Um, beyond that, they 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 are very different. A regular opinion poll either you, you you're phoning somebody up or you're getting somebody to fill in a form on the internet, and we've got to select who do we talk to before. I'm going to go through quite elaborate procedures of trying to pick a representative sample of the British public. Um, For the exit poll, we're not doing that. We are very carefully deciding where we go to do the poll. And obviously there's a limit to that. We can only afford to put so many interviewing teams out in the field on election day. We go to as many as we can manage to do. And then we are systematically... Interviewing all the voters, or a, a a random sample of the voters, but enough of the voters to be pretty sure that we've got a very accurate picture of how people voted in those polling stations. Um, so the the um, the gap between the measurement and the the outcome, the prediction, or the the the, um, the overall measure of voting
0: intention, is is, is filled in a completely different way. Okay, and you, 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 you've already said that uh, more money is spent on the one exit poll than is spent on polling through the whole mm. campaign, which shows that the, the people paying for it obviously place a very high premium on this. But who are the customers? Who is paying who is well, for it? Well, it, it's paid for by the broadcasters, so BBC, ITV and Sky News.
1: Um, they jointly commission it, and clearly it's a big part of their election night programme. Um, they commission it from um, a team of academics who um, design the poll and do the analysis, working with polling companies who actually do the practical work of putting interviews on the ground and, and doing the interviews. So the, the polling company I work for, Ipsos Mori, has been doing this since 1997, um, in recent elections we've generally worked with another company called GFK used to be called NOP um, and then there's an academic team um, John Curtis who's employed by the BBC, Colin Rawlings and Michael Thrasher who work for ITV and Sky News um, and between them and with their colleagues they design exactly how we're going to do the poll where we're going to go and do the uh, the interviews and then, when we get the data back on the day they analyse that and work out what it means in terms of actually predicting the result of the election.
0: So those of course different outlets in the end there's only one exit poll or only one publicly available exit poll that we we know we know for certain the existence. That, of. That's right and it is such a huge
1: exercise that it no it's very unlikely that anybody else is going to be doing their own extra private exit polls of the same sort um, there used to be more than one. BBC and ITV used to do separate ones until two thousand and one, um, and they came to the conclusion that it was better to combine their sources and do a one bigger and better one than than two separate ones.
0: Okay. Now, uh, exit polls, I suspect, are not unique to the UK, but in in the context of the UK and what we call the first-past-the-post-electoral mm-hmm. system, what, what particular challenges does that system present as opposed to if you had a more proportional electoral system, well, for example? It, if we were exit polling in a system with proportional
1: representation, essentially we'd be measuring something different. All we'd need to measure would be how many votes each side's got. That's not the aim here, the, the, the complications of first-past-the-post are really the, the whole essence of what we're trying to do, because the broadcasters want to know how many seats is each party going to win, so we need to measure votes, but we also need to work out how is that going to translate into how many seats each party is going to win, and the whole design of the exit poll is built around making that translation, of
0: giving us the information we need to, you know, to jump from one to the other. And I've noticed that in terms of the presentation of polling between elections, is all about the percentages in the way it's presented, and they don't say that much. Whereas on the night of the election, all you really hear about is the seats, and there's not much discussion of the. Uh, but b- perhaps because that could be an unwelcome distraction from from the the, the the matter of the seats. That that that's right. Yeah, I mean, we,
1: it would be perfectly possible to design the exit poll so that it was predicting vote shares as well as seats, and it, I mean that used to be done, but. You know, that then does become a distraction. It's not what they want to talk about. They want to talk about has the the biggest party won a majority or not, which is the biggest party. Um, And if you get a position where seats and votes don't match up very well, um, you just get confused if you're trying to talk about both of them at once. Now, the regular opinion polls, they don't have that level of information. Within what you can afford to do with an ordinary opinion poll for a newspaper, you can measure the votes relatively easily, but you need huge amounts of extra information to turn that accurately into seats, which is exactly why you need
0: this much bigger, more complicated exercise for the exit poll. What is success in the context of an exit poll, in your view? Um, Well, it's... It's a very
1: difficult question, because... What would be regarded as success you know in in, in terms of our work as as political scientists or as market researchers is quite simply to make a measurement that is within the margins of error of the poll but that's often not enough for journalists and for other critics of polls they want to criticise even when we haven't done the impossible Um, Now, in fact, the exit poll in recent years has been extraordinarily accurate, extraordinarily successful, really more than we could reasonably expect. We've been lucky. (laughs) In three of the last four general elections, we've got the number of seats for the biggest party within four seats. Now, the margin of error is much, much bigger than that. I mean you can't calculate it exactly but it's in the region of plus or minus 16 seats so when you've done your poll all you can confidently state all you would be allowed to to, to say if this was an academic paper we were writing is our researchers said that the result will be within 16 seats of this and 16 seats is a lot it's it, it it's really too big a margin to fit the, the, the level of precision people want to understand what's happened in the election it's the difference between a party winning a relatively comfortable majority in parliament and being well short and having to look for coalition partners um, and it's in fact is exactly what happened in the one recent poll when we were a little bit less accurate than that um, in 2015 the poll said the Conservatives would get 316 seats. In fact, they got 331. Now, that's not wrong. That is within the margin of error. But as far as critics of polls are concerned, that looks wrong because 316, what the poll said, is a hung Parliament, and 331 is a majority government. Now, there's nothing to do about that. But polls cannot be supernaturally accurate. They are polls. They are surveys. Laws of statistics dictate that there is a margin of error just through sampling error. But people would like it to be more accurate than that. So we can come up with a poll that we are satisfied with is as good as it could reasonably have been. And that's not necessarily going to satisfy everybody. Now, clearly... um, we like to satisfy everybody. If we are lucky, if we carry on being lucky and getting ridiculously close, getting the exact number of seats as we did in um, in 2010 and again in 20, uh, 2005, um, you know that's great and clearly that's a success. But it's it's difficult when the expectations are unrealistic, and because this is a very complex um subject that a lot of people don't understand, it's often difficult to get across to people why it isn't realistic
0: to expect that an exit poll can always predict within five seats. And I also suspect that in, for instance, 1997, whether you were 10, 20 seats out when Labour were going to win a huge majority and that was pretty widely expected doesn't really matter that much it's, it's in an era where for the time being I'm not predicting what's going to happen in the future mm-hmm. but for the time being results have been very tight and winning an, a workable majority is much more challenging that suddenly you're expected to produce this pinpoint accuracy and I can understand why people want that but then there are these, these scientific criteria we we're all talking about which are difficult to get across yeah, that, that, I mean that's absolutely right and the, the same applies to the conventional polls
1: as well as to the exit polls when the election isn't close, it doesn't matter if you're a little bit out and nobody notices and people say, hey, the polls are great and maybe get a an unreasonable level of expectation and trust in what the polls can do because they're simply not noticing how accurate the polls are. And yes, as it happens, the exit polls in 1997 were a little bit further out um, of the two polls, one overestimated... Tony Blair's majority one underestimated it, but it didn't matter because they, you know, it would have been almost impossible to not notice that Tony Blair was going to get a majority. Um, with politics at the moment, with results likely to be close, it matters far more if the result is a little bit different.
0: And there's absolutely nothing we can do about that, that's not within our control. One of the and you touched on some of this, but one of the major challenges in conducting an exit poll, and if you had unlimited resources, we've said these polls are very well resourced <clears> compared to, to, to your regular opinion polls, but if you had unlimited resources in time, money, etc., what might be done differently? Well, with, with unlimited resources, quite simply, we'd make the poll much bigger. The more people you interview, the more
1: places you go and do interviews, the better your information is going to be. And... You know this does happen in some of the countries. Um, I mean, I'd better not, not mention the country, but a, a country where we've done exit polls at Ipsos relatively recently. Exit polls were a new thing; it was massively important to make absolutely sure that the exit poll worked and worked perfectly and created confidence in the whole polling industry and so on. Uh, and they sent out interviewing teams to tens of thousands of polling stations now you know we, we we can't afford to do that for our budget which is big we can poll at between 140 and 150 polling stations across the country and that's the the biggest challenge i mean that number of polling stations will give us a total sample size of somewhere between 20,000 and 30,000, which sounds big. But it's not really because it's not the total number that matters because what's a far bigger determinant of whether that gives us a good prediction or not is whether we're at the right polling stations there's a massive difference between polling stations there are lots of polling stations where almost everybody votes conservative and lots where almost everybody votes labor and a lot which are split 50 50 and if we don't get the right mix of those then the poll isn't going to be right and the big challenge we have in this country which applies to nowhere else in the world we can't check beforehand and make sure that our sample is representative because voting numbers are not published at polling station level. This is part of the law goes back to the 1880s to yeah. protect against corruption and bribery. Yeah. Um, to, to, to,
0: to stop the... Yeah. the, the, the we now order. have pre-budget statements instead of corruption and bribery with elections. <laughs> okay. uh, yes.
1: But with, with, with those pre-budget statements, um, even if the Chancellor knows which village he is expecting to vote for him as a result of that, he can't check up afterwards that they have done. Indeed. Um, So what that means is we've got to try and pick a relatively small number of polling stations without any direct knowledge of how they voted last time. And if you're just doing that at random, the margin of error there is huge. You know, essentially, it's a sample of 140, not a sample of 25,000. And as you'll know, you know, conventional opinion polls is a sample of about a thousand, which gives you a margin of error of plus or minus three. And even that's too big. You know, th- plus or minus three points on a party share is the difference between Labour being the biggest party and the Conservatives getting majority. The margin of error in the exit poll, if you just pick polling stations at random and you only pick 140, would be bigger than that, which obviously is totally useless. So the challenge is to find some way of getting around that of being sure that the information that we're getting is useful and representative and is telling us how the voters are voting without having to go to tens
0: of thousands of different polling stations, which we can't afford to do. General elections, obviously, to a large extent, about parties. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I've got some questions I'd like to ask about how this figures into what you're doing. If there are one or more parties, for instance, that have not contested a general election before and they're, they're now running a significant number of candidates... How do you deal with that? What challenges might that challenge um, pose to yeah, your, to I mean, your it, polling? It does pose a challenge, but
1: it, it, it's a relatively minor one. Um, and the, the first and foremost one is to get this um, accurate measurement of how the national vote is going to go, and that's true, whatever the parties. Are in. If you've got a new party, so long as you know how much their vote has gone up, then you've got the same information you need. Um, but let me explain how we deal with that challenge of not being able to poll at very many polling stages, because that's the essence of it. Uh, now, the first key thing that we rely on is that although... Votes vary a lot across the country. There are lots of labour areas and lots of conservative areas and lots of mixed areas and some the Dem areas and so on. The change from election to election varies far less. Um, That's what we call national uniform swing. And so the poll is based around measuring change. And if we can accurately measure how much the vote has changed, it doesn't matter so much whether we're in very conservative areas or very labour areas, because the change is going to be similar. How do we measure the change, given that we don't know what happened last time? Well, this is the, the clever bit, <laughs> and this is also why there can only be one exit poll, because we're using something that a new exit poll can't have. We're using our information from last time. As far as possible, 140 polling stations where we go to and do our poll are going to be the same as 140 polling stations where we voted, where we polled at the last election. So although we don't know what the official result in those polling districts was, we know what our poll said in those polling districts. And so in each of those 140 different polling districts, we've got a direct measure of change from the last election to this election. Add them all together, you've got a measurement of what's going on across the country. Then comes the second bit, you've got to look for patterns in that. What sort of constituencies are behaving differently? Is Wales behaving differently from the rest of the country? Are constituencies which have voted Labour in the past but are pro-Brexit voting differently? are constituencies with lots of students voting differently. And you run the numbers through the computer and you come up with basically a list of what are the the key differences which the data is telling you are big enough to matter, statistically significant differences. And you can then build up basically an equation, what we call a model, to tell you how every constituency is going to vote. So take your constituency, and know, Wellingborough. We know what the result in Wellingborough was last time. We know what we think the national changes, Conservatives up so many percent, Labour down so many percent. And we know what are the other differences in our list that apply to Wellingborough. Okay? So it, it, it's not in Wales, maybe it's slightly more pro-Brexit than, than others and so on. And we add in all of those, and out of that formula comes a prediction of here's our predicted result in Wellingborough. We then, from that, can say, we think, allowing for the possibility of margin of error and so on, that the probability of the Conservatives winning in Wellingborough is X percent and of Labour winning is X percent. We add up all of those probabilities across the country and that gives us our prediction. So we've built in all... The different factors that we can detect in the data on the day. And that means that, in theory, most of the time, so long as we know what to look for, we have all we need if the measurement is right. Now, we've still got to do the the difficult but straightforward bit of actually get the the interviewers on the ground finding out how our polling station in Wellingborough is voting. But that's a, a, a relatively straightforward part of the job. But if there's something, obviously, that we haven't thought of and we haven't built into the model, then we've got a problem. So if it turns out that constituencies where there are lots of farmers are behaving completely differently from everywhere else and we haven't thought of that and we haven't put that into the the input that's gone into the um, into the computer, then maybe we're going to miss that and maybe we're going to be... That far out on those different constituencies, and if it's something we have thought of, then we've you know we've still got to make sure that we've got enough information to deal with it. So, for example, in uh, 2015, it was obvious before the election that um, UKIP was going to be a big player for the first time. Now we couldn't have measured how well UKIP was going to do if we weren't polling in enough constituencies where UKIP was going to do well because UKIP, you know, we could guess they weren't going to do equally well across the whole country. They were going to be strong in some places, weak in other places and we needed to have enough constituencies where we expected them to be strong and enough where we expected them to be weak to make sure that we could build all that information into the prediction. So the challenge when you get changes in the circumstances new parties coming in, new issues coming up and so on, um, is that maybe we need to change where we're doing the poll? In this case, to bring in more, um, more likely UKIP, more more, areas. more, more likely UKIP areas. Um, I mean, another big change that's happened over the last few years. Suddenly, Scotland has become far more significant in the result because up to 2010, we knew that Labour was going to win almost every seat in Scotland. You didn't need much polling to find out what was going on there. Now, suddenly, Scotland is a lot more complicated. It's making a much bigger contribution to the overall result. Um, So we need to make sure we're doing enough interviews in Scotland to get a reliable measure of what's happening there. Um, So that means that one of the elements that we do have to do, and one of the things that complicates it, we can't just go back to the same 140 whatever polling stations every time. We do have to fine-tune that selection. Uh, And also you get the complication that every now and then polling district boundaries are going to change. So if you went back to the same polling station, you simply wouldn't be polling the same people. So again, at that point, you've got to tear it up and go somewhere new. Um, And as it happens, that part of the job is my job, which is when we've got to pick new polling stations, somebody's got to look through all the available data and pick which are the best ones. So given that we've decided we want to poll in... A constituency for the first time which is the most representative polling district do you ever go
0: there physically country?
1: and have a look or? i don't usually go there right. physically no um we try and do it first of all from local election results yeah. so although we don't have any local breakdown general election results we can see how the wards vote at local elections so we can see which, you know, which, which is a, a reasonably balanced ward as opposed to being strongly Labour or strongly Conservative or strongly SNP or whatever. Uh, and then within that ward we can look at the census data of the polling districts and try and find the most typical polling district.
0: So you must get to learn a lot about the geography you, 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 and, you, and profile of the United Kingdom for uh, this job. Uh, uh, exactly. You have to have quite a good feel for
1: What sort of place, as described
0: in the statistics, is a good place to do the exit poll? And each area, so you would do Northern Ireland, for instance, so you'd have to look at... Um, Oddly enough, no, we don't do Northern Ireland. You don't do Northern Ireland? Um, Northern Ireland, of
1: course, is is a completely different party system. Labour, Conservative, Liberal Democrats don't win seats in Northern Ireland. They don't usually fight. They don't money in that many, sometimes, but yeah. So, doing the exit in Northern Ireland wouldn't contribute at all to know what's happening to Labour and Conservative. Now, it, was, it, it would be useful, and particularly at the moment it's becoming more useful, to know how are the seats going to fall out between the different Northern Ireland parties. But to do that, we'd need a full-scale separate exit in Northern Ireland. You know, do, doing... With all the numbers related to the divisions and the different groups. uh, Exactly, yes. Suppose we set aside five polling stations in Northern Ireland as part of the poll. From five polling stations, we couldn't possibly get a reliable measurement of how is the DUP doing against the UUP and how is Sinn Féin doing. It would just be a a waste of money. So really all the exit poll can say about Northern Ireland is that 17 seats will be taken by Northern
0: Ireland parties. I digress there but that's very interesting uh, mm. now they may this some of this may may be in doubt been dealt with in what you said before but uh, there are historic examples of electoral pacts between mm-hmm. parties the most famous one is probably the 1918 coupon election where Lloyd George and the Liberals who'd followed him in, into his government uh, splitting from from the Asquith liberals had an arrangement with the Conservatives that in in Predetermined seats; they would not run candidates against each other. Yeah. Now, I know you weren't doing this in 1918, but but were, were this to come up again in a future general election, how might might an exit poll try and handle that and model for that?
1: It won't really be very different from what we're doing already. Okay. It it it'll be all part of the measurement of what happens to the votes of each of the party in different circumstances. But, of course, we will need to ensure that we're building those circumstances in. Right. So if there are seats where party A and party B yeah. have got electoral pacts, we must make sure we're polling in some of those constituencies so we can see, do the voters do what they're expected to do or not?
0: Yeah. So were you doing it in 1918, you need a seat where there was a, a Lloyd George liberal and, and no conservative... And, a, and an Asquith Liberal, and maybe an independent Conservative, and, all, and try and get a range of those those kind that's, of seats to factor into that, your. That's exactly right, yes. And I mean, you
1: know, that points up to some extent one of the the, the real problems that any exit poll is going to have. If you have weird local circumstances, it's very hard to, to take full account of them if they are really weird and really local. If they're only happening in one or two constituencies, you can 't measure them with a no. uh, a national poll they just you know they 're just too small they, they yeah. sort of go go below the resolution yeah. of the poll
0: and they won 't necessarily make much difference to the, the headline figure although in I know in some general elections, including recent yeah. ones, every seat can count but that, that 's right you know, it, it, if it is just one or
1: two fine we you know it 's not going to matter much we We can shrug our shoulders. If it's, it'd be hard to blame you for that. Well, exactly. If it's fifty, but every one of those fifty is separate and different,
0: we've got a real problem. Again, a similar question, and it partly comes back to the point about the electoral system. We have a phenomenon of tactical voting, and I guess your mm-hmm. answer is going to be you try and model this in, but but uh, if you and, and tactical voting, I suppose is. It's hard to know whether people people actually are voting tactically or not, but we're aware of this concept. And obviously, in as far as it is real, it happens in every election in the UK to some extent, I presume. So that's a permanent thing you have to account for. That's right. Tactical voting is not something we try and account for separately. Right.
1: All we're interested in is knowing how they're going to vote,
0: not why.
1: Yeah. Uh, I've no doubt there is a huge amount of tactical voting going on and being incorporated into the... The exit poll, but you know, if for example a lot of the Liberal Democrat vote at a given election is really Labour supporters voting Lib Dem to stop the Tories, well all we need to, to measure is
0: how many Lib Dem votes there are Yeah. Sometimes particular issues can be more divisive than others mm-hmm. and can uh, perhaps make people more likely to vote differently or not vote or or vote rather than not vote than 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 they might otherwise do were yeah. that issue not around uh again i suspect this this all works into your model anyway but is that something you try and take account of yeah very much so but the,
1: you know the, this is exactly the sort of thing i'm i'm mentioning in terms of making sure that we're polling in the right place yeah. so yeah you know obviously a, a classic example of this would be brexit in 2017
0: Yes, um,
1: um, that's what I had in mind. Yeah, and so it was necessary to make sure that we were polling in enough Labour seats that were leave, and enough Labour seats that will remain, enough Conservative seats that were leave, and enough Conservative seats that will remain, so that we had a solid body of evidence of what the voters did in each in each circumstance. And that's fine and easy when it's it, it's a clear um, issue like that. Um, because we'd had the referendum and we knew how each area had voted in the referendum. We had a very clear idea of how strongly Leave or Remain each part of the country was. So it was very easy to build into the design of the poll. If you get something that suddenly comes up where it's harder to pin down where is this going to matter, then potentially that's much trickier. I can't think of a an example of that that has come up in recent years, but maybe it will come up in the future. And that is, you know,
0: is where it's much more difficult. Well, I think you've covered a huge amount of ground there and really uh, explained things. That I think certainly for me and I, and for the, for those who are listening to this podcast, will make them uh, look upon the polling that's announced on the next general election night, whenever that may be, in in quite a different way. Uh, it'd be, inter- uh, be interesting to talk a bit about uh, how you came to be mm-hmm. actually yeah. in this post you know, w- 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 what was your path that took you to, to where um, you are now studying individual constituencies across the country and polling stations w- w- it, it, in a sense it's a complete fluke I mean, it, it's clearly very much
1: the sort of thing that I want to do and yeah. you know, other people seem to think I'm reasonably good at it um, I, I think they're correct uh, in believing that. I started off with this really doing my doctorate at Oxford on the British electoral system, the way in which the Boundary Commission draws the boundaries, and the the political impact of that. And so, who so was your supervisor? My president? supervisor was David Butler at Nuffield. Very right. lucky, the, right. the, the the great election, yeah, the great e- David e- Butler expert. Yeah. Um, and before I even got to that stage, my undergraduate tutor had been in McLean, who was also very much an enthusiast around elections and help push me in this direction and, and get me enthusiastic about it. Um, so I came out of university having done my doctorate with this whole sort of geographical aspect of elections being one of the things that I had studied and knew about. And I then went to work for Mori, doing a bit impulse. Now, at that point, Mori wasn't doing any um, exit polling and never done any exit polls, but within the next few years they did their first one. When, when did exit polling start, do you know, in yes, the UK? The, the, the first UK exit poll in 1970. Okay. Uh, it was just in. In one constituency for the BBC in 1970, and then that worked, and they rolled the whole thing out nationally, both BBC and ITV in '74.
0: And that's a very interesting election for them to have uh, to start started with. Mm. In that, uh, it, we went through a cycle of: at first, it looked in the late '60s that how Wilson's Labour government was dead in the water. Then it looked like they'd eat their way back, or this was popular wisdom that that they were going to actually win the general election and then actually they lost it. So was that poll accurate? Did it The poll was very very accurate. Right. Play, played a big part I think in establishing the idea. Right. So it's partly again these these luck this luck it, it can happen to be a good time to have, to have been right to have been right in that election would earn you a lot of credibility. Exactly. Um, and to be honest that,
1: that's the way a lot of social science works. If it's at, at the right time yeah. and and it could be for the wrong reasons, for, 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 yeah. for the wrong reasons, or, or for for luck, or for a you know a a correct but imprecise yeah. conclusion happening to be bang on the mark. Yeah, and that convinces people who don't really understand what it is anyway that yeah.
0: this is a great idea and ought to be promoted. And being being wrong for the right reasons rarely uh, wins you any support. Exactly, um, and it, it it's a problem with. You know, all, all of what we do in academia really the disconnect between our methodology going about things the right way the speed, that the, the, the time that takes and also the, the realistic expectations of what we can deliver the disconnect between that and what the punters out there want or what people who are intermediaries between us and the punters think the punters want which is quick, decisive, simple answers to yeah. questions well, you know, I'm sure is what the punters want but yeah. sometimes that's impossible and And then you, so you came in, you were taking this on for uh for, for Morrie, started doing the Yes
1: exactly. I mean it Maury made the decision to start doing exit polls, I think essentially because there was a um the company that had previously been doing the ITV exit poll wasn't going to carry on doing it, mm-hmm. so there w- was a chance to tender for the contract and we went for it and got it.
0: And um, was this Bob Worcester our good friend, Robert Wuster, Bob, Bob, Bob uh, Worcester? Bob Worcester he-
1: was head of the company then right. whether it was he who made that decision or not, I'm not sure may have been whoever was head of political research at the time, but I'm sure Bob you know, was was fully behind it um, it certainly wasn't me I was a very junior figure. but once we decided to do it you know, clearly I was one of the the natural people to
0: to pull yes. in on this. Yeah, and you've been doing them ever since. And we've been doing them, and I've been doing them ever since. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a long day, is it? The actual election day itself.
1: Um, it is, and it isn't.
0: Um, I presumably, you've done all the work anyway. At that, that, that point, it's you push the that, domino, that, and the dominoes are, are knocking each other down, and that, that's right. And my my part of the job on election day is simply sitting in the office
1: hoping nothing goes wrong and be, being there, you know, if, if something does catastrophically go wrong, I, I would be the person who has to deal with it or help deal with it. Uh, but, of course, across the country, we've got 140 teams of interviewers arriving before the polling stations open at 7 o'clock, working away, doing their polls, interviewing a dozen people an hour until 10 o'clock, phoning back the results, and it's a very long day for them. Right. And that's and a huge logistical management job. A, a huge logistical management job. Um, and then we've got telephone centres full of our um, telephonists who are collecting the results as they're phoned in from the polling stations around the country, turning them into a computer file, and then locked up somewhere in a, um, a darkened corridor in the BBC is John Curtis and his team, who have got this data and have got to turn it into a prediction in a very short period of time, in total secret so nobody knows what's going on because it it is quite literally illegal to leak the results of uh, of the exit poll before 10 o'clock so it's a long day for all of them my part of it really is it's a long six weeks beforehand of doing all the preparatory
0: work so everybody who's working on the day is, is ready to do their job so what actually happens on the ground on the day um
1: At each of the polling stations around the country, we will have a team of interviewers. I think it's usually three interviewers in each team, although they may work in shifts during the day and bring in extra people and so on. They will arrive before the doors open at the polling station at seven in the morning, and they will be all day selecting a random sample of voters to talk to. So we'll have told them beforehand... We know how many people we expect to vote at that polling station. And taking that into account, they'll have been told, for example, talk to every, one in every five voters. And so one of them will have a little mechanical clicker to count the votes, and every time they reach a multiple of five, they will stop the voters as they come out and ask them to do the poll. And doing the poll is very simple and straightforward. They're given a replica ballot paper and asked to fill it in again the same way they've done before, fold it up without showing it to anybody, put it in a ballot box. So it's very quick. It replicates as far as possible the action that they've just done. And we find because it's quick and simple, it is possible to persuade most people to do it. And we get a response rate of well over 80%, which is absolutely phenomenal for this sort of survey. And that's vital in terms of... Of making the data reliable we are really getting a pretty solid sample of all voters at that polling station to take part uh, if the voter says no we replace them with the next similar voter so the next person of the, the same gender and approximately the same age and same class if there are sort of obvious differences of that and so on um, but we, we we keep an eye on that and we check whether there's a difference between the Uh, the original selections and the substituted selections at several points during the day the interviewers will stop and will open the ballot box and will count all the ballot papers and will then phone back their numbers to the telephone bank that is is recording all the things so through the day at various intervals we've got the data coming in through all the polling stations and being fed off to the analysis team, who will add it up and build it into their model and work out how is this prediction going to going to work out. Uh, and then at around nine o'clock, so about an hour before the polls finally close, we have the cut off for the main part of the poll, the main data prediction. So at that point, again, all the polling stations will phone in their numbers at that point, and that's the final data that the analysis team will then use to produce the number that is put into a sealed envelope and handed to David Dimbleby and Jonathan Dimbleby and whoever's doing the, 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 uh, the sky thing. And they will see the numbers about five minutes before they go on air it's exciting for them as well um but that's basically the process and i mean it's very straightforward in 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 a sense but of course it's also difficult and lengthy and um you know well well that sounds nice um if it's pouring with rain and if the 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 voters don't want to stop and if you've got. Local officials who are being unhelpful and so on. It can be a very stressful time as well. And the interviews do a incredibly good job. And the data has always
0: arrived on time and has always been. And, correct. and who are these people? I mean, and how do you find them at what could be relatively short notice in, in for instance, circumstances of a snap general election?
1: Well, they're all part of the regular interviewing panels for Ipsos Mori or. NOP or whoever it is doing the poll. So they're people who are working on all our other market research at other times. Um, we tend to use the, the same interviewers on the exit poll again and again. Um, they like doing it. It apparently is a, a, a you know, really popular and um, ego-boosting thing to do to be working on the, the election exit poll. And I guess you know, I think they will then love it when they can go home and you know, unusually can see the direct impact of what they've been doing all day on their television screens. But this only works, of course, because we do have these panels of interviewers who all the time are, are doing
0: their um, job of face-to-face interviewing for market research. Right, and it might be shampoo, it might be supermarkets, or it might be... Who are you going to vote for? Or in this instance, who did you vote for? That, that's right, yeah. And
1: I mean, it's one of the facts of life that the number of companies that are doing this amount of business that is done in face-to-face interviewing is steadily contracting. It's getting harder and harder to, um, to find enough interviewers for big jobs like an exit poll.
0: A word you've mentioned a few times is computer. I suppose mm-hmm. in in 1970, I suspect there was a computer of some kind involved. But even in the time you've you've been doing it, there must have been some significant changes in in the technology. Has it made it easier? Has it just increased people's expectations, or just changed the way you do it in any way? I, I,
1: I think it's probably a definite benefit. I mean, in the time that I've been involved, there hasn't been, I think. Much of a real change in, in in the the statistical end of it, right? Um, it, it's a pretty sophisticated computer model, but we've been able to do that since the 1990s. Yeah, it would have been, I suspect, a lot simpler in the 1970s. And in fact, when I first did it. For Mori with ITV, we were doing things on a less complicated basis than NOP and BBC were doing it. So BBC had the the, the big computer model that we use now. Um, we were doing much the same thing in principle, but basically doing it with spreadsheets.
0: Okay, now that all of that's fascinating. Uh, to to round things off, uh, can you recommend? A good book on polling, exit polling, or indeed on on anything else for our listeners. It, it, I don't think there is a good book on
1: modern, up to date British polling. We need to write it, don't we, Roger? I, exactly. You do. I, 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 I think I, I'm probably stuck with this it's at some point in my life. Um, there are at least three very good books they are all written in the 1990s uh, Bob Worcester and Nick Moon both pollsters both wrote very good books on the theory of polling the history of polling how polling is or was done in the 1990s and remember this is a point in which we barely knew the meaning of the word internet so things have moved on a lot yeah. since Bob and Nick wrote yeah. their books and um, At exactly the same period for for the academic market, David Broughton wrote an excellent undergraduate textbook on um, opinion polls. And all of those three, I'd I'd, I'd recommend, they're very good reads. They haven't really been brought up to date. On the exit poll itself, um, the best thing by far is a single article written by John Curtis and David Firth, It's in the Journal of the Royal Statistical Society and it explains from start to finish
0: how the whole exit poll is designed and how the data is dealt with. Right, so anyone listening to this podcast today who wants a kind of, finding this interesting, wants a kind of single statement of how it works from A to Z, the procedure should go to that article. Exactly, yeah. Very good. Roger that's been great. Uh, To all our listeners, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Governance Podcast with Roger Mortimore and me, Andrew Blick. To learn more about our upcoming podcasts and events at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at CSGKCL. In the meantime, we look forward to seeing you again soon on the Governance Podcast.